before giving us advice and telling us things that we should expect, but something that nobody uh, had told me uh, to expect, nobody had told me to prepare for this, is that when you have kids, you don't really get to have your own possessions anymore. <laughs> so all you parents knew that already. So to make room for Judah, you know, his nursery, his toys, we started getting rid of our own stuff. And then Simon came along, and now me and Casey, we don't have stuff. Our house is minefields of toys and crayons and books all over the place. And don't get me wrong, I wouldn't trade that for anything, and certainly not for any of my stuff. But when I was purging our house of my personal items, I came across a box of awards that I had been given when I was, was younger. As I was throwing them away, I came across the first trophy that I had ever been given. And I got this trophy from the first sports team that I played on. The first sport I ever signed up for was in fifth grade, and I played soccer. And our team that year was just awful. We were, we were really, really bad. I mean, we were so bad that every time we went to school, the day after a game, all the kids would make fun of us so much for losing to the point that we would try and keep the scores of the games a secret. But somehow, our classmates always found out. And I remember, remember one day that I was, I was so proud that we didn't lose a game. And I was very surprised to learn that my classmates didn't think that a tie game that was zero to zero, that it wasn't impressive. <laughs> and I told one of my classmates, I said, it's better than nothing. And she said, it literally is nothing. <laughs> but the point of the story is not to tell you how a girl in my class hurt my feelings. The point is that later on, after the season was over, there was some sort of assembly at the school, and they gave awards out to different teams, and they gave the whole soccer team a trophy, the dreaded participation trophy. And I remember holding that as a 10-year-old kid and looking at it and saying, why do I have this? We didn't win a single game. I don't deserve this. To be honest with you, I, I despised that trophy. But the reason that I held on to it for so long is because it really made me want to go out and actually earn one. But you know, the participation trophy grew out of this desire in people's hearts to spare feelings and to, to help everyone feel as though they are equal. But even an elementary school child can understand that life isn't filled with equal results for all people. And there are winners and losers in sports. Just like there are successes and failures in business, there are people in life who do great things or a few things or little to nothing in this life. You see, as nice as the idea of equality of both opportunity and outcome might sound to the world's ears, the reality is that mankind, in all of its frailty and imperfection, will always fail to achieve that. Of course, where mankind fails, God prevails. There is, in fact, a lot of equality for people in the spiritual realm. What I mean by that is that the Bible is very clear that there are those who are equally separated from God in their sin, and then there are those who are equally members of God's family. And more than that, the invitation to join God's family is an invitation available to everybody, regardless of wealth, or status, or race, or background, or works. So if you want to know what real equality looks like, don't look to people whose greed and selfishness and vanity will always prevent this. 
No, instead look to God, whose abundant love and grace presents everyone the opportunity to be saved. It's strange, though, that despite such great equality, the world hates these truths that we are going to see today. And we're going to see some of them as we turn together to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Romans 3. Again, we'll begin in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 913. Page 913, Romans chapter 3. And I realize it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Romans together, so I want to summarize for you what Paul has been writing leading up to this. Paul has spent uh, quite a bit of time making it clear that good works cannot bring salvation. That heritage, our background, can't result in eternal life. That spiritual works, things like baptism, that these cannot earn you a spot in heaven. And all the excuses that people make for sin and unbelief will not help them on the day that they stand before God in judgment. So if you've been with us throughout the series so far, maybe at this point you've thought to yourself, wow, the book of Romans is a whole lot of doom and gloom. You know, where is all the hope? The good news is that we are about to see the hope this morning. Now that Paul has made it clear that we are all equally unable as human beings to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and march straight into heaven by our own merit, now that we are found hopelessly stuck in sin, now that, Lord willing, we see these truths, now the light of grace can begin to pour in. So Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 21. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And stop right there. Before we can go any Further, we have to stop at this verse. You see, here at Romans 3.23, we have found a truth that a lot of people have found harsh. It summarizes everything Paul has said up to this point. Until people recognize this truth, they can never be set free from sin and hell. Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That is, every person is a sinner, a lawbreaker, someone guilty of crimes against the God of the universe. And Paul knew that in his day, like in our day, there would be people who would say, yeah, but I'm not a murderer or a thief or an adulterer. I'm not like the kidnapper. Surely I'm not going to share the same fate as those people. Look, your sin might be different in its kind or in the amount or in how acceptable it is to society, but it is sin nonetheless. So, verse 23 is very important. Let me explain it by paraphrasing how one pastor put it many years ago. He said this, he said, The harlot, the murderer, and the kidnapper have all fallen short of God's glory, and so have you. He said, They might be down in some low pit while you see yourself as standing on top of a mountain, but you are just as incapable of touching the stars in the sky as they are. 
And you see, the same thing is true for God's glory. Sure, there are worse sinners out there than me and you. We might stand head and shoulders above them, but we are light years away from touching the stars and even further than that from coming near to God's glory. So the first thing that we need to understand is this. We are all equally guilty of sin. That is, as people, we naturally stand separated from God because of the bad things that we have done. There might be bigger sinners out there, but even one sin makes us a lawbreaker. As the Bible makes clear, the just penalty for these crimes of ours is to be separated forever from God in a place called hell. And we can scream about that. We can call it unfair or unjust, but it is the essence of equality, by the way. I mean, all who sin will face the penalty of hell. The bad news is we've all sinned, and the penalty's coming. And we have to understand this first. Please realize Paul wasn't being a downer or a gloomy Gus or an Eeyore. He simply knew that until we recognize where we stand as sinners, then we will never understand how by faith we can stand before God as saints. And it's for this reason that Paul said in verse 21, he said, but now, now, despite all of our hopeless efforts, something better has come, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, the law and the prophets were always pointing to the Savior. You see, the light of grace is about to shine through in Paul's words here, and I don't want us to miss it the way that so many people in the world have. He said, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 24, he says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now here is the good news. No, no, here's the great news for this lost and sin-filled world, which is that although every person stands condemned, there is the opportunity for every person to be justified. You see, understand this second this morning. We are all equally able to be forgiven of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. All the bad things we've done, those crimes that we have committed against the holy God of the universe, the very crime sending us to the fiery pit of hell, all these things can be wiped away. We can be acquitted of all this. That is what it is to be justified, is to be declared right, to be in good standing. And for the Christian, that good standing, it's forever. Oh, so the question that we need to ask is, you know, how did that come about? How is this even possible? And it came about, Paul says, because of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. When my wife was teaching at First Academy, that great Christian school in Leesburg, she was teaching a Bible lesson one day when one of her students shouted about something being unfair. So Casey looked at that student and said, you want to know something that was really unfair? How about someone dying for crimes that they never committed? After people lied about them and spit on them and tortured them and then hung them on a cross. Does that sound fair? And so she explained to her students how Jesus Christ 
came and lived a perfect life so that he could die for the terrible and imperfect things we had done. And she told them how Jesus did this so that we could be saved. Her students asked how they could be saved, and that day, every student in her class prayed to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that things are not always fair. Because what's fair is for you and me to spend an eternity separated from God. That would be fair. It would be true equality, too, because everybody would enter into it. And that's what we've actually earned, by the way, not heaven. But understand, understand what's available to all of us, all us poor, miserable, sinful wretches. Salvation is available to us. Because Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty. And so now we have this opportunity to be redeemed. Uh, That word redeem or redemption refers to the purchase of freedom. The Bible says that as people, we are all naturally slaves to sin. Well, the price for our freedom was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And now through faith in him, we can be freed from sin and hell. We can belong to God forever. But you want to know what's even more mind-boggling than this free offer of salvation and forgiveness from God? It's that so many people in the world despise it. Our world that clamors for equality hates God's offer of salvation that is made to all people. Instead, they spend their time actually claiming that God is unfair, that he would send anyone to hell. Or they'll say, how dare God claim to be the only way to him? Or something like that. Instead of rejoicing at his offer of forgiveness, they spend their time complaining and they miss out on redemption. Reminds me of the story of the Christian CEO, this man. He was a, he was a good man. He was a successful man. He owned a large company. And, and you see... In that company, he had a lot of employees, and and as is the case sometimes, those employees at different times needed money, and and they borrowed money from their boss and from the company. So over time, as you could imagine, they built up some substantial debts that they owed him. Well, one day, the CEO, he, he posted a notice where all the employees would see it, and it said this. It said, anyone who comes to my office on Thursday between 11 a.m. and noon to present their debts to me will have those debts canceled at once. Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? It almost sounds too good to be true. And that's what a lot of the employees thought. They thought it was too good to be true. In fact, they thought that their boss was being mean to them. He was pulling their leg, playing a prank. They got upset at this notice that they saw. So when Thursday finally rolled around at 11 a.m., a crowd of employees had gathered on the street in front of the building where the CEO's office was. And they stood there griping and complaining about their boss as time ticked on. Finally, at 11.45, one employee, he ran through the crowd, burst into the CEO's office. And as soon as he opened the door, his boss said, what are you doing here? And the employee said, well, I came because you said... Anybody who brought you a list of all their debt that you would cancel it. And the CEO said, do you believe that that's true? His employee said, I do. He said, when I saw the notice, I thought that it was kind of strange. But then I thought to myself that you're a good man 
I didn't think that you would willingly deceive any of us that way. So the CEO, he took that debt and he wrote at the top of it, he wrote, paid in full. Oh, and that employee, he was just overcome with gratefulness. He couldn't believe it. He thanked the CEO. He's so excited that he, he ran out of the office, ran to the street, and he showed the proof to all his fellow employees. This was real. Well, then, of course, as you can imagine, all the employees, they made a mad rush to the CEO's door. But it's too late. Because by then it was past 12 and the door was locked. They had rejected their boss's offer. Sadly, despite God's offer of forgiveness and salvation, many people in this world spend their days rejecting and despising it, griping about the Savior who died for them. And sadly, as time goes on, one day their life will end, and if they've continued to reject that offer when they stand before God, there will be no more opportunity to accept that offer of forgiveness. Jesus lived a life of righteousness that we could never live. To die a death that we will never fully grasp so that we could receive eternal life that we will never, ever deserve. He demonstrated true righteousness. And the moment that we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, the Bible tells us that His righteousness is put on our account. So when we stand before God, God will not see all those wretched things that we have done. Instead, he will see that the penalty has been paid in full on our behalf and that the righteousness of Jesus is covering us. And you want to know who this is true for? For everyone, Paul says, everyone who comes to him in faith. Which leads to this, verse 27. Paul says, where then is boasting that's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Well, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Understand this third this morning. All Christians stand as equal recipients of God's grace. That's why in the family of God, there is no room for boasting. Because none of us earned our salvation. Uh, it came by grace. It was a free gift that was given to us. We didn't earn this by the law. In fact, that's not what the law was given for. The law was given to show us our need for a Savior. So Paul says, okay. Some will accuse us of saying that that nullifies the law. Is that true? In other words, does the gospel of salvation by grace through faith make the law worthless? Paul said, no way. No, the gospel actually upholds the law. You see, only someone who perfectly kept the law could take our place and take our punishment for us. That's Jesus Christ. And the only way God could remain just while pardoning us is if the penalty for sin is still met. Well, Jesus Christ took that penalty when he hung on the cross and bore the weight of all our sin. The wrath of God in that moment was satisfied. The penalty of the law was fulfilled. And the gospel, the gospel points to all these things. 
Those who have accepted the gospel truth and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're the ones who are saved and justified. And the result of their salvation is that they will desire to uphold God's law in their lives. You see, when Jesus saves someone, he doesn't leave that person the way that he found them. No, instead he comes and lives within them and allows them to live and love in a way they've never lived and loved before. In this way, God's people will strive to uphold his law that's found in Scripture. Not out of obligation or out of legalism, but out of a love for him. In other words, if you've truly put your faith in Jesus, then you should be able to see the ways that Jesus is changing you. Now, it's not going to happen overnight, but change will happen if Jesus is in you. Now, you'll still be imperfect, but you should always be found living by faith. So what's that type of faith look like anyways? Think of it this way. There's a Christian from Africa who used hunting to illustrate two different types of faith. He said one type of faith is like the hunter shooting a deer that's far away. Really what the hunter needs to do is just aim the rifle properly and and just use a little bit of effort from his finger to pull the trigger. It's really an exercise of the mind. And in a similar way, a lot of people treat faith as nothing more than an intellectual exercise. It doesn't really affect how they're living. He said, but then there's the type of faith that's like the lion pouncing on its prey. The lion's entire being is required for the effort. Every bone, every muscle, all its energy, all its focus is poured into the task. Now let's be clear. Hunting is easier with a rifle. But our faith should be like the lion. It should result in every fiber of our being moving and living for Jesus Christ. Living obediently for him, pursuing him and sharing him with others. That, that's what saving faith looks like. And that should be the faith that's seen in God's people. And some people in this life have put their faith in Jesus, while, as we know, many others have not. What I hope we understand this morning is that the Bible is very clear. Everyone stands equally separated from God or equally saved by God. There's no middle ground. There's no other place that you can stand. You're for him or against him. You're in God's family or you're in the family of the devil. And the gospel reveals the truth that the opportunity to cross from separation to salvation, that is available to everyone who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. So the question that I would like each of us to consider before we leave today might sound a little simple, but the question is this. It's what am I going to do with the gospel truth today? Because I understand that there are a number of us here who have accepted the gospel. And if that's true for you, if Jesus is your Savior, you put your faith in Him, then I have a couple ways that I really want to challenge and encourage all of us as believers. The first is this. Believers, let today be a day that we rejoice in our salvation. And what I mean by that is, when was the last time that we actually thanked God for our salvation? When was the last time that we did that? That we went to Him and we said, Thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, for taking the weight of my sin, for going through the torture of that death, for being rejected by men, for taking my penalty. Jesus, thank you for justifying me, because without you, I'm hopeless. When was the last time we did that? See, I can't help but think that if, as Christians, if we were a more thankful people, that we'd be a more faithful people. 
that we'd be more faithful to live obediently, more faithful to serve one another, more faithful to share the gospel. Which leads to my second challenge for those here who are followers of Jesus Christ, and it's this. We need to realize that if salvation is available to everybody, then we need to go and share that truth with somebody. We need to go share that with someone. And if we aren't doing that, if we're not willing to do that, then we at least need to admit that our faith is not taking hold of us the way that it's supposed to. So believers, these are the two ways that I would challenge you. When we close, when we have our final song of invitation, go to the Lord and praise Him for your salvation and evaluate your heart and ask, are you sharing the message of salvation with anyone? Ask God to send someone in your life you can share that with. And if you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, please understand that the choice is yours. You can continue to reject Jesus, but friend, recognize this. If Jesus endured the wrath of God the Father on the cross, do you really think that God will withhold his wrath from you if you reject Jesus your entire life when you stand before him? Our sin must be paid for. Jesus already paid the penalty. But if you don't accept his payment on your behalf, you will spend all eternity paying it yourself. But you don't need to do that. The price has been paid. Forgiveness is available. Rescue is waiting. If only you'll give your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. If that's where you're at, Jesus isn't your Savior, please understand, friend, that you don't have to walk out of this place the way that you came in. During this final song, this invitation song, as we sing, you can come forward, you can talk to me about these things. We can pray together. You can give your life to Christ. But maybe you're here and you're ready to do that right now. And if that's true for you, if you know that Jesus isn't your Savior, but you're ready to change that, then you can go to Jesus in prayer and you can pray something like this. And friend, I promise you that if you pray this by faith, Jesus Christ will save you. You can pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I've broken your laws. And I know that I deserve to be punished for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you didn't stay in the grave, but that you rose from the dead. And Jesus, today I am asking you to forgive me of all my sins and to be my Savior. Today I am giving you my life because I know that you can do more with it than I can. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if anybody made that decision today, that as you wrap them up in your loving arms, as the next days and weeks go by, they would see the ways that Jesus Christ is changing them from the inside out. For those of us who have made that decision, Father, we should be the most thankful people. Because without Jesus, we're, we're hopeless. We're helpless. We're stuck in our sin. And you sent your son to pay the price for us. So I pray that everybody here at First Baptist Church of Oxford who is a follower of Jesus would begin every day by thanking you for our salvation. So that every day 
we would look for somebody we could share the good news of salvation with. Give us that opportunity when we leave this place so that you be pleased. Because that's what we want, Father. We don't need accolades. We don't need people to be pleased with us. We don't need our own honor. No, we want you to be honored and glorified in our lives. Father, we love you. You proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. I pray we would always thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.